This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For information on how you may obtain an accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree with online courses, please visit us at virtual.rts.edu. Uh, so I want to you know, do that again here in Hebrews chapter 9. And I want to look specifically at verses 13 through 22. Uh, in that passage, uh, we get a good idea of the covenant, covenant theology, and also specifically... Uh, the passage deals with the place of Jesus Christ within the covenants, His place within uh, covenant theology, so to speak. Uh, There in Hebrews 9, verses 13 through 22, you find that Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, and that as the mediator of the new covenant, He both purges the sin of His people, and He dispenses the blessings of the covenant of grace to His people. He's the mediator, and as the mediator, he purges sin and he dispenses blessing. Now, as many of y'all might be aware, ever since the beginning of chapter 8, Hebrews has been comparing and contrasting two different covenants. Uh, We've said that covenant became prominent there in chapter 8, and specifically the author has been contrasting two covenants. On the one hand, you have the new covenant, Uh, We know what that is. We learned about it in uh, the prophets. And on the other hand, uh, the author refers to what he calls the first covenant. Uh, That terminology first appears in chapter 8, verse 7. He refers to the first covenant. And by that first covenant, the author pretty clearly has in view the Mosaic covenant. Now, it can seem a little strange to refer to the Mosaic Covenant as the first covenant, because as we know, it wasn't the first covenant. But we need to bear in mind that this book, the book of Hebrews, is being written to Jewish Christians, and in their experience, the Mosaic Covenant was the first covenant. It was the covenant under which they had found themselves, under which they had known their faith prior to their faith, or prior to their... Uh, acceptance of Christ. Uh, essentially, it was the one that they had known earlier in their lives. In their lives, it was the first covenant. Uh, so, beginning in chapter 8, Hebrews has been comparing and contrasting this first covenant with the new covenant. And it's been showing how, in every sense, the new covenant is superior to the first covenant. And when you get to chapter 9, verse 13, this comparison and contrasting is focusing specifically on the sacrifices of the two covenants. Uh, And in that discussion, uh, the author deals with how Jesus, as the mediator of the new covenant, purges the sin of His people. Now in verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 9, uh, the author mentions the sacrifices of the first covenant. Uh, He refers to both uh, the blood of slain animals such as bulls and goats, as well as the ashes of burnt offerings. And he says that these sacrifices were able to provide a ritual or an external purity. He says they were able to sanctify for the purifying of the flesh, is the language that he uses. That's in verse 13. But then in verse 14, the author turns his attention to the sacrifices of the new covenant. 
And that sacrifice, the sacrifice of the new covenant, is, as he says, the blood of Christ, who, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without spot to God. And the point that the author is making is that this sacrifice is far more powerful, it's far more efficacious than the sacrifices of the first covenant had been. Uh, The blood of Christ, as the scriptures say there, the blood of Christ is able to cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now clearly the blood of Christ is far superior to the sacrifices under the first covenant because while that blood had brought ritual purity, the blood of Christ sinks down and cleanses the very consciences of His people. Christ's sacrifice is far superior to the sacrifices of the first covenant. That's what uh, verses 13 and 14 are making clear. And then verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 9 begins with, and for this reason, in the English, which is uh, translating tautu in the Greek, it's uh, expressing a, a very causal sort of relationship. Uh, because of what had been said in verses 13 and 14, what is being said in verse 15 follows. It's a, a causal relationship. Because of the superiority of his sacrifice, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. That's what uh, the scriptures say there in verse 15. Uh, verse 15 goes on to say that Christ is the mediator by means of death, or hopus thanatu in the Greek. Uh, now, thanatu there is a, a genitive absolute, and again, it's making a very strong, or is bringing out a very strong causal relationship. Uh, to put it simply, Christ's office of covenant mediator is based upon it springs from his death. It's because of Christ's death that he is the mediator of the new covenant. So, Christ's atoning death, the blood that he shed, uh, it both purges the consciences of his people, purges them from dead works, uh, as we had seen, and it also establishes Christ as the mediator of the new covenant. All of that is being made clear. But before verse 15 closes, it also makes one more interesting comment. It says there at the end of verse 15 that Christ is the mediator of the new covenant for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. Now, there the author really is uh, making a, really just a further note of the superiority of Christ's sacrifice. Uh, not only does Christ's sacrifice affect the redemption of transgressions of the men and women reading this letter, the men and women living after Christ's sacrifice, but it also affects redemption for the transgressions that had been committed under the first covenant. Uh, Before Christ had come, before He'd offered Himself as a sacrifice, uh, clearly the blood of Christ in the new covenant is surpassingly glorious, far uh, above anything that had come under the first covenant. Now, In all that, we need to note the pretty clear supposition of the unity of the covenants. Uh, Even those living under the first covenant are finding their redemption in the blood of the new covenant. There's not a division between the two. Uh, The blood of Christ in the new covenant uh, even works for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. 
all of the sins of all of God's people under all the covenants find their redemption in the blood of Jesus Christ. A blood that purges sin and that establishes Christ as the mediator of the new covenant. So already, by the time you get out of verse 15 in Hebrews chapter 9, you have a clear sense of the unified covenant of grace building to its fulfillment in Christ. Uh, the blood of the first covenant, the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of burnt offerings, all of them had uh, adumbrated the blood of Christ in the new covenant. Uh, the sins committed under the first covenant are redeemed in the blood of Christ. Uh, then this new covenant blood of Christ comes and purges sin, it cleanses consciences, it establishes Christ as a mediator. Uh, very clearly there's a, 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 a unity of the covenant of grace from first covenant to new covenant. Um, Now, um, you know, all, all of this uh, explaining how Christ as the mediator of the new covenant is, is purging the sin of his people. Or you could, you could say, I think with justification, you could say that as the mediator of the new covenant, Christ Jesus is dealing with the problem created by Adam's failure in the covenant of works. As we've just seen in some detail back in Romans 5, it was through the covenant of works that Adam had brought sin and death into the world. And as mediator of the new covenant, Christ undoes the destruction that Adam had done. So in a real sense, the, the purging that comes in Christ's blood is God's remedy, so to speak, for Adam's failure in the covenant of works. It is Christ making right what Adam had made wrong. Uh, Christ's work as the mediator of the new covenant is very much a, a correction of uh, a writing of Adam's sin in the covenant of works. And as you, but as you keep moving along in Hebrews chapter 9, you know, the, the author goes on to say a good deal more. In verses 15 through 17, uh, having dealt with how Christ is uh, the mediator who purges the sin of his people, uh, the author goes on to deal with how Christ, as the mediator of the new covenant, dispenses the blessings of the covenant to his people. Now in verse 15, you see that Christ serves as the mediator of the new covenant, uh, as verse 15 says, that those who are called may receive the promise of the, of the eternal inheritance. Now the eternal inheritance there is, really nothing less than the fullness of God's covenantal blessings. Uh, it had been promised to the people of God, and by His death, Christ guaranteed that they would receive it. Uh, in verses 16 and 17, Hebrews deals with how that guaranteed dispersal of promised blessing occurs, uh, how it is that Christ uh, distributes the blessings of the covenant. And when you get to verses 16 and 17, you get into somewhat of a debated area. Uh, as y'all who wrote on this portion of Scripture probably are certainly well aware, and if you've done the reading out of Robertson, you'll be aware of it as well. Uh, there is some disagreement over exactly how to translate the Atheke in verses 16 and 17 of Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, the word occurs twice in those two verses. Diatheke occurs twice. And also, diathemenos occurs twice as well. Now, as you remember from earlier in the semester, diatheke can technically be rendered as either covenant 
or as testament. A testament in the sense of last will and testament. And the question that arises in verses 16 and 17 is whether to translate the atheke as covenant or as testament. Now, if, you, if you've read Robertson and you remember it, you remember that he feels pretty strongly that the atheke there ought to be rendered as covenant. Uh, his argumentation on that point is pretty extensive. It's uh, pretty persuasive. I'll refer you to it if you haven't read it yet or if you don't remember it. But he presents a good case for translating the atheke as covenant. Uh, however, I am of the opinion, and I'm not alone, uh, that diatheke in verses 16 and 17 should be rendered as testament. Uh, if you want to see a sort of representative commentary sort of treatment of that view, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce in the uh, New International Commentary series argues it pretty well. Uh, Philip Hughes, his commentary on Hebrews, which is generally a, a pretty good commentary on Hebrews uh, with some reservations, but generally a pretty good commentary on Hebrews uh, takes the position as well. Uh, and you know, not, not to belabor the, the translational point, but basically you know, in, in pretty brief scope, um, in the context of the passage there, it very clearly and evidently is the death of Christ that is in view. And so if you render diatheke as testament, then the death of Christ is the death of the testator, uh, the death of the one uh, making the testament. And as we'll see here in a second, that understanding fits. But if you render diatheke as covenant, and you follow Robertson's, as I said, very cogent sort of reasoning to that effect, then the death of Christ becomes the ritual death of a self-maledictory oath. Now, it, it seems to me hard, both conceptually and theologically, to conceive of how the death of Christ can be seen as the symbolic death of a self-maledictory oath. Um, it seems to me that the death that is in view, the death of Christ, indicates that diatheke ought to be rendered as testament. And also, when you get down to verses 18 through 22... Uh, Hebrews discusses the role of the blood that was used in the covenant ceremony in Hebrews, or excuse me, in Exodus chapter 24, and he compares the death of verses 16 and 17 to the death that produced that blood in Exodus 24. Um, now, I think that, um, and when you uh, when you get to Excuse me. And there in uh, verses 18 through 22, when this, uh, the death from Exodus 24 is being discussed, it's discussed as a, a purifying uh, death, a death that produces purifying blood that leads to the remission of sin. It's described as being the blood of the covenant. Uh, the death there isn't being presented as a self-maledictory death, as it would have to be if the atheke is rendered as covenant, but rather it's uh, being described as a uh, sacrificial sort of death, a death much more in keeping with uh, what would be in view of diatheke as speaking of a testament. Uh, it seems to me that overall, uh, the language pretty naturally lends itself to being read as testament, and then uh, diathemenos, therefore, being read as testator. Uh, Robertson's case can be made, certainly, and I think uh, he makes it very well, but it seems to me that 
as a whole, it's better to take it as testament. But anyway, I don't want to go into any, don't want to belabor that point any more than I already have. Um, but with our, our reading of testament in verses 16 and 17, if we take it as testament, it seems to me that we can really get a hold of what's going on in the passage. At the close of verse 15, Hebrews had said that the death of Christ as the mediator of the new covenant guaranteed the receipt of the blessings of the covenant by the people of God. Now that had been made clear at the end of verse 15. And then the author goes on in verse 16 to say, hupogar, or forwear, the receipt. Basically, the, the point that he's making is the receipt of the covenantal blessing by the people of God is guaranteed because of what he goes on to address in verses 16 and 17. Uh, the receipt of the covenantal blessings by the people of God is guaranteed because there's been a testament, there's been the death of the testator, and therefore the testament has gone into effect. In other words, with Christ as the testator, uh, the one whose goods are dispensed through the testament, those blessings pass to God's people. Now if you remember back toward the beginning of the semester when we were discussing <clears throat> the covenant of grace in somewhat general terms, we talked about how the covenant of grace has both a covenantal aspect and it has a testamentary aspect. Uh, we refer to the covenantal administration of the covenant of grace on the one hand and the testamentary administration of the covenant of grace on the other. Uh, the covenantal administration refers to Christ actually procuring the blessings of the covenant uh, procuring them specifically through his active and his passive obedience. Um, and then the testamentary administration referring to Christ freely giving those blessings to his people. Uh, Christ merits the rewards of the covenant and then he freely gives them to those who haven't merited them. Um, if you're really sharp, I don't know why in the world you'd remember this specific um, quotation, but... I had quoted from Francis Turretin um, back when we were discussing exactly how to understand the word diatheke, and Turretin had said that diatheke, quote, peculiarly denotes a testamentary disposition with a federal agreement. Uh, a covenantal agreement in the Council of Peace, if you, all, you remember all that, uh, a covenantal agreement that has given rise to a testamentary disposition in the historical outworking of the covenant of grace. Christ has purchased redemption, purchased the blessings of the covenant, and then he freely dispenses them. There's both aspects to the covenant of grace. And it's precisely that sort of nuanced meaning, both a covenantal aspect and a testamentary aspect, that's being brought out here in Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, in verse 15, we had seen how Christ's blood had actually earned the blessings of the covenant. Uh, there, the covenantal nature of the covenant is being very clearly seen. But then in verses 16 and 17, Hebrews is speaking of how those covenantal blessings are freely dispensed as in a, a testament to the people of God. So there you have very clearly the testamentary nature of the covenant of grace. So we see here Hebrews revealing what we have called earlier uh, an expansive covenant of grace, a covenant that involves both Christ's procurement of covenantal blessings and his free dispensing of them in the outworking of the covenant of grace. Now Christ has earned covenantal blessing, and he then dispenses that blessing 
to his people. Um, so there in verses 15 through 17, um, our understanding of what Christ does as the mediator of the covenant has been expanded a little bit. Uh, we had already seen that in, as his, in his mediatorial work, Christ purges the sin of his people. And then we also see how he dispenses, as the mediator of the covenant, he dispenses the blessings of that covenant. Uh, he has already obtained them, and then he dispenses them to his people. Uh, in, a, in, a, in a very real way, you see how uh, the totality of God's covenantal purposes uh, are being met at Calvary. Uh, with the death of Christ, on the one hand, the condemning power of the covenant of works over God's people is being abolished. Uh, their sin is being taken away. Uh, the blood of Christ is far superior to the blood of the Old Testament sacrifices. It's purging the sin, purging even the consciences of His people. Uh, the effects of the covenant of works are being undone, in essence. And then also, the blessings of the covenant of grace that Christ has procured are being dispensed to his people. So, in a sense, on Calvary and Christ's sacrifice, you have simultaneously, for God's people, the end of the covenant of works and the dispensing of the covenant of grace. Uh, Christ's work in both covenants, if you want to think of it that way, is being uh, met together in Calvary. Uh, sin is being taken away and blessings are being given. Does he a hand go up? Yeah, I'm just thinking, sir, this passage is always going to be a little difficult. Mm-hmm. So when he's speaking of the will there in 16, the early Testament, it's essentially speaking of the promises of God, and that the promises are, the promises are guaranteed by the death of the one who is, by, by Christ's death. Is that, is, that, is that how we're to understand that? I'm trying to get exactly how to interpret it. Yeah, well, he, um, well, what's saying is it? Yeah, the, the, the point he's making um, in 16 and 17 is that just as a, a testament, the last one, a testament, essentially has all blessings or all the benefits of that testament are guaranteed to its recipients without any qualification on their part. But before it can go into effect, the testator, the man making the testament, has to die. I mean, you can't get your inheritance while the man's still living. But once he dies, the testament is activated and then the blessings of it are freely dispensed to the recipients without them having to do anything. And the, the, the point that Hebrews is making is that um, that is what occurred through Christ's work. Uh, he had procured the blessings of the covenant uh, by his work, and then his death was as the death of a testator, in a sense releasing the covenantal blessings to his people without qualification on their part. Is that... Um, essentially, Christ's work in both covenants, covenant of works, covenant of grace, um, is meeting together. On the one hand, he's doing away, at least for his people, doing away with the effects of the covenant of works, purging their sin. There's no more guilt. They're being made righteous, as we talked about in Romans 5. And simultaneously, his testamentary death is, in a sense, releasing all the blessings of the covenant of grace to his people. And I think what, what, what that does is it, and we'll 
come back to it um, in a minute, uh, is that it gives us a, a, a very, I think, rich understanding of what we mean when we say that Christ's death was a covenantal death. Um, in his death, in a sense, he took out the covenant of works for his people and he brought in the covenant of grace for his people all through his death. His death uh, satisfied the covenant of works and inaugurated the covenant of grace, you could, you could say. And I think that all um, is brought out there in Hebrews chapter 9, uh, the, the dual aspect, dual covenantal aspect, you could say, of Christ's death. Um, now, I, there's, there's more that could be said about Hebrews chapter 9, but if y'all um, don't have any questions, maybe we'll, we'll keep moving along to, to try to get through what we had said we would cover in the course of Well, the kind of the the comparison that's on the surface of the passage is between the new covenant and the mosaic covenant. But the, in particularly in the the contrast or the comparison contrast uh, that's being dealt with in verses thirteen and fourteen, um, you know, the author is dealing with how the the blood of Christ as a sacrifice is far superior to the blood of bulls and goats, etc. But He's holding them both up as trying to accomplish the same thing. So it's not as if the Mosaic and the New are trying to accomplish different ends. It's just that the, mo- the New Covenant is far superior to the Mosaic in its efficacy. And he's arguing against the viewpoint that the Mosaic Covenant stayed, right? Would that be the other way to understand the fact that he's arguing that people are trying to return to a Baptist tradition? Yeah. Generally speaking, the, his, the argument in Hebrews is you know, the, the superiority of Christ therefore the really condemnable error of returning to something that's less glorious. So he, um, he, he's not, like I say, he, he's not pitting the two against each other as if they're accomplishing different things, but just that the new covenant actually accomplishes what the old covenant was simply pointing to. Does that kind of get at what you're asking? Um, but both of them, in a sense, I, th- I think you can, if, you, if you're wanting to speak in covenantal terms, both of them, both the sacrifices of the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant, they're both essentially addressing the problem created by the failure of the covenant of works. They're both atoning for sin, uh, trying to purge the guilt of God's people. And the point that the author is making is that the blood of Christ is what actually does it. Um, so it's in that sense that his death removes the covenant of works for his people. It atones for the sin, both actual and original, uh, that have accrued under the covenant of works. Anything else? Hopefully that wasn't too terribly convoluted. Um, well, if, um, 
If you're okay, we'll keep, we'll keep moving along quickly to try to get through everything and still have some time for general questions at the end. Um, we want to look next. Um, hopefully you have, given, have gotten somewhat of a, a representative look at covenant in the New Testament. Um, we've seen in, in Romans how covenant theology is really uh, the soteriological grid that uh, Paul uses that the scriptures use, and then in um, Hebrews 9, we've seen, hopefully, uh, that uh, the, it's in covenantal terms that we understand the death of Christ, both removing the guilt that comes from the covenant of works and actually inaugurating and freely dispensing as a testament the blessings of the covenant of grace. But now we want to look for just a couple of minutes, at covenant theology and how it influences a particular locus of systematic theology, uh, particularly how it factors into ecclesiology. Uh, now, certainly there's a good deal of overlap there. If, if ecclesiology is the study of the church, study of the people of God, then it makes sense that the covenant through which those people were created would be important. Uh, it's pretty clear that covenant theology bears on ecclesiology in many ways. But in particular, this morning, we want to look at how covenant theology influences our understanding of the sacraments. Um, as we've pointed out before, uh, this has been an area in which, historically, covenant theology has been much applied. In fact, we've noted earlier in the semester that, in the opinion of some people, covenant theology is really little more than an elaborate justification to baptize children. Um, now, certainly that caricature is terribly inaccurate, but it is true that covenant theology is very important for our understanding of the sacraments in general, and in particular, our understanding of baptism. And generally speaking, covenant theology influences uh, our understanding of the sacraments in two ways. First of all, our understanding of covenant theology creates certain expectations of what the sacraments will be, uh, what they'll do when we find them. Uh, we know, in the language of the confession, we know that the sacraments are signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Now that terminology is oftentimes thrown around, but sometimes not completely understood. When we say that the sacraments are a sign of the covenant of grace, we mean that the sacraments represent, uh, they sign, uh, the, they signify something about the covenant. Uh, they're a sign that represents the covenant. And when we say that they are a seal of the covenant, we're referring to the fact that they serve as a guarantee of the covenant. They uh, confirm that which they represent. You know, the, the idea is somewhat like you know, in the old movies, you know, the king will have a ring, a signet ring, and he presses it into a wax seal or into wax, and it creates his seal, and that sort of authenticates uh, his authorship of the letter or whatever. It's the same sort of idea. The seal uh, confirms and guarantees the thing that is being signed. And given our understanding of covenant theology, we have an expectation of what these signs and seals uh, will do uh, when we come to the New Testament. 
you know, particularly back in Genesis chapter 17, we had found the covenant sign and seal of circumcision, and we had been able to develop a sort of understanding of how those signs and seals function. Uh, so when we then come to the New Testament and meet the New Testament signs and seals, the signs and seals of the covenant of grace that we find there, uh, we're not starting from scratch. We have sort of categories through which to understand those signs and seals, and we'll see why that's important in just a minute. But just to note in general, uh, covenant theology creates expectations for what we'll find in the sacraments. But secondly, covenant theology also creates a certain expectation of continuity. Uh, if God has one covenantal purpose and He's been pursuing it through all the ages, we expect there to be a marked similarity, a marked continuity, as you move from one stage of redemptive history to another. Now, certainly there is progression, but that progression comes within a framework of overarching continuity. Uh, to put it simply, since there's one eternal covenant of grace that's being revealed from Genesis 3.15 through the end of the Scriptures, things don't have to be reiterated to be binding. We expect a certain degree of continuity. So, you know, speaking in very general terms, Covenant theology gives us uh, this expectation that we will find in the New Covenant signs and seals that accomplish what had been accomplished by the signs and seals under the Old Covenant. It kind of prepares us to understand the sacraments. And that's precisely what we find when we come to the New Testament presentation of the sacraments. Now, of course, we know that there are two sacraments, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and we'll look... First of all, and in the most, most depth, at baptism. As we've said, uh, baptism has historically received the most attention along these lines. And once you're in the, the pastorate, as it might already be occurring for you in conversations with friends, um, it's this particular area where you'll get the most questions. Um, the foundation for baptism, what it means not even always necessarily why we baptize children, but what it means when we do, what it means when we baptize adults. Uh, just questions about what baptism is and what it does, what it accomplishes, and why it's important. Uh, so we're going to look in some degree of depth at baptism. And I think it's best uh, to think, um, when you consider all the, you know, the various views on baptism that are out there, it's best, I think, to conceive of them as being on a sort of continuum. And the continuum essentially represents the direction in which the, sac the direction of the action that the sacrament has in mind. Hopefully I'll explain that better here in a minute. Now, on the one, this is the, our continuum. On the one end of the continuum, you have a view that sees the sacraments as uh, being entirely God acting upon man. Uh, by the sacraments, God unilaterally comes in and He affects His work. Uh, in the case of baptism, God comes and through the sacrament uh, saves the one being baptized, whether that person is an adult or an infant. 
this is the uh, view most often associated with the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, also, the Lutheran Church falls into this sort of a view, um, you know, different extremes, but... Um, you know, the, the view that the sacraments are entirely God acting toward man. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, the other end of the continuum, you have a view of the sacraments as representing entirely our action toward God. Uh, the sacraments don't really sign and seal anything that God is doing toward man, but rather what man is doing toward God. Uh, in the case of baptism, uh, the sacrament represents the faith, the repentance of the man or the woman being baptized. And here, of course, you would have, this is sort of the, the Baptist view um, of you know, the sacraments representing what is done by man toward God. And um, I think it's, worth noting that if you're talking about you know, this continuum, this end of the spectrum, this end of the continuum, represents the theological commitments of the Baptist church, but it also, <clears throat> I would say, represents the de facto position of most Presbyterians today. Um, just kind of generally, we, people tend to understand baptism way on this end of the continuum. Now, you have some people some camps now that put it way over here within the Reformed Church. But generally speaking, most people fall on that end. Uh, baptism becomes little more than essentially the dedication of an infant. Uh, you know, the parents think that by having a child baptized, they're um, agreeing to raise the child in the church. Um, they're uh, essentially representing their action toward God, their dedication to the child, their agreement to raise a child in church, uh, the, the focus is very much on man's action toward God. But the right position, uh, in my opinion, and I think in the Scripture's opinion, uh, the, the Reformed covenantal position is somewhere in the middle. Reformed. Oh. Uh, claim my position as the Reformed position. Um, on the one hand, the sacraments very much represent and principally represent man or God's action toward man. Uh, we've seen uh, throughout the covenants that God gives the signs and the seals of the covenant. God gives the sacraments. Uh, he gave the rainbow in the Noahic covenant. He gave circumcision in the Abrahamic covenant. And we've seen that the covenant that's being represented is God's covenant. He refers to it as my covenant. It's a covenant he sovereignly uh, initiates, he sovereignly administers. Uh, very clearly the sacraments represent uh, God's action toward man. But at the same time, there is an element of mankind's responsibility, uh, his responsibility of obedient response within that. Um, We've seen you know, throughout the covenants um, that, uh, that man is the recipient of God's sovereign grace, but there also is place, a place for his responsibility. Um, so there's at least some element within the sacraments uh, for man or that, that understands a, 
something outside of just purely the, the sacrament affecting something. Um, but largely, we need to understand, I think, that um, the sacraments, for the most part, represent God acting toward man, but without the ex opera operato sort of view of the Roman Catholic Church. <coughs> um, certainly, a, a, an important view or an, uh, an important passage in the New Testament uh, when we're considering baptism, uh, one that people oftentimes will refer to, uh, comes in the second chapter of Colossians. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. Now, in that particular passage, uh, Paul is, in, in the larger passage, I get my pages messed up, in the larger passage, Paul is discussing all the spiritual blessings that Christians have in Christ. And then, in verses 11 and 12 specifically, Paul says that one of those blessings uh, is that in Christ, Christians are circumcised. Now, whatever circumcision meant, whatever circumcision did, Christians receive its benefits in Christ. Paul makes that clear in Colossians 2, verse 11. And then in Colossians 2, verse 12, he goes on to say that Christians are thus circumcised when they are, as he says, buried with Him, meaning Christ, in baptism. So in Colossians 2, 11 and 12, Paul is saying that in baptism, the Colossian Christians receive the benefits, they receive the blessings that were to be had from circumcision. Now there's the very closest of connections being made there between circumcision and baptism. Essentially, Paul's saying that in baptism, the Colossian Christians are circumcised. So that raises the obvious question, what did circumcision do? If Christians receive in baptism the benefits that were received under circumcision, what was it that circumcision was doing? Well, as you can imagine, we find the best and clearest explanation of what, bab- or what circumcision did back in Genesis chapter 17, uh, back where circumcision had been instituted. Uh, specifically in verses 9 through 14 of Genesis chapter 17. Now, we don't have the time to, to read all those verses, but you can uh, maybe look at them later. Basically, in those verses, in Genesis 17, verses 9 through 14, two important things occur. We, or we notice two important things about circumcision. First of all, we find there that circumcision was an outward physical sign that represented the very heart of God's covenant with His people. Uh, in verse 11 and also in verse 13 of Genesis chapter 17, God even speaks of circumcision circumcision as being the covenant. It wasn't some sort of trivial sign. It was inseparably linked with the saving reality, the saving power of the covenant. It was a a physical sign that pointed to a spiritual reality. It was a, a cut in the flesh that pointed to God's saving covenant. That's what you see, first of all, in Genesis 17. Secondly, you see that because of this close identification between the sign and the covenant itself, circumcision brought both enormous blessing 
and tremendous responsibility. On the one hand, it brought blessing. It placed the sign of God's covenant in the flesh of His people. Now, that's particularly in view in verse 13. But on the other hand, it brought great responsibility. If you weren't circumcised, you were cut off from the covenant. Now, that's emphasized in verse 14. So, overall, what was it that circumcision did? It took God's saving covenant with His people and it pressed that covenant upon His people. It held out to them God's promise to be their God and it held out to them their obligation to be His people. Now, circumcision was an outward sign that pointed to, uh, that was connected to the inward spiritual reality of God's covenant. Now, that much, at least, is clear from Genesis 17. In the covenant sign, there was an external sign on the one hand, and it was pointing, on the other hand, to an internal spiritual reality. Now, the, the presence of those two components to circumcision uh, is, again, evident and is critically important when you come into the New Testament, and particularly when you look at the second chapter of Romans. Uh, in Romans chapter 2, Paul's talking about the sinfulness of man. And then when he gets specifically to verses 25 to 29 of Romans chapter 2, Rome, uh, Paul speaks about circumcision. And there Paul says that the outward sign of circumcision, if it isn't joined with the internal spiritual reality to which it points, is useless. In fact, in verses 28 and 29 of Romans 2, Paul even goes so far as to say that the outward physical removal of the foreskin isn't really circumcision. Real circumcision is that which occurs in the heart. What's truly important about circumcision isn't the outward sign, but rather the internal reality to which the sign points. So that raises the question, if the, if the critically important thing is this internal spiritual reality that the external sign pointed to, then what was that great spiritual reality? What was this spiritual reality that was the heart of circumcision? Well, Paul comes back to discussing that in the fourth chapter of Romans. Now, he discusses some other things, then comes back in Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, verse 11, Paul is speaking of Abraham, and he says, referring to Abraham, and he received the sign of circumcision a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. So, what was circumcision? It was a seal or a guarantee of the righteousness of the faith that Abraham had before he was circumcised. And if even, even that perhaps could use a little bit more clarity. And you find that clarity if you look up a couple of verses in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. In Romans 4, verse 3, Paul had written, he, uh, he had said, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now imagine you all recognize that particular scriptural, scriptural quotation. Uh, Paul is quoting Genesis 15, verse 6, back where the Scriptures had told us that Abraham's faith had made him righteous in the sight of God. God looked on Abraham's faith and he counted it as righteousness. So, with that in mind, look at Romans 4, verse 11 again. And he, meaning Abraham, 
received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. Circumcision was a seal or a guarantee of the righteousness of Abraham's faith. It was a guarantee that Abraham's faith would be counted as righteousness. In the words of Romans 4 verse 11, it was a seal of the righteousness of the faith of Abraham. It was a seal that Abraham's faith was righteousness. So, you know, building our statement here, what is it that circumcision did? Circumcision provided a tangible guarantee of God's promise to save those who believed in Him. A tangible guarantee that faith would bring righteousness. In in the terms of our continuum that we have up on the board, circumcision wasn't a sign of what man had done toward God. It didn't have to do with what Abraham had done toward God. But it was rather a sign of what God had promised to do for Abraham, to count his faith as righteousness. As we've already noted um, back when we were in Genesis chapter 17 several weeks ago, uh, circumcision never was intended to save anyone. It was given to Ishmael Ishmael as well as to Isaac. It, uh, it, It wasn't given to save. It wasn't entirely, a, or it wasn't a, an effective action by God in that sense. It didn't affect righteousness. It didn't affect salvation. And it also wasn't intended to mark out an ethnic people. We also saw that in Genesis 17. It was given to everyone within Abraham's household, not just to his physical descendants. His circumcision was neither guaranteeing salvation or you know, affecting salvation, nor was it marking out an ethnic people but rather it always was intended to take the covenant that God had made with Abraham, uh, the covenant that brought righteousness through faith, and to press that covenant upon everyone under Abraham's authority, both on his children and on his servants. Uh, Everyone under Abraham's authority was given a tangible, physical guarantee of God's promise to count faith as righteousness, uh, God's promise to save those who believed in Him. Now, at that point, it might seem that what God was doing in circumcision was a little bit superfluous. Uh, If God had already made the covenant promise, if He'd already promised Abraham to count his faith as righteousness, what's so important about a covenantal sign to guarantee those promises? Well, as we saw back in Genesis 17... God was giving this sign as a source of assurance. Uh, In Genesis 15, if you remember, God had given Abraham uh, both a verbal assurance. He'd shown him the stars spread in the night sky. He'd also given him an enacted insurance. He had had the self-maledictory oath that we saw. Uh, God was giving Abraham assurances that his promises were true, that he would uh, fulfill them. But those assurances, in a sense were somewhat ephemeral. You know, the, the vision that Abraham had, the stars in the night sky, they weren't always with Abraham. And so in Genesis 17, God gives Abraham an assurance or a, uh, a sign of reassurance that abides with him always. Uh, in circumcision, 
God was giving Abraham an enduring covenant sign that his covenant promises were true. So, in short, that's what circumcision did. It took the promises of God's covenant, the promise to count faith as righteousness, and sealed it upon his people. And if you remember back you know, several minutes ago now, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul has told us that what circumcision did, baptism now does. In other words, bapt- baptism takes the glories of God's covenant with His people, uh, that covenant that promises to save those who believe in Him, and it presses them upon God's people. Now in Colossians 2, 11 and 12, it's clear that Paul is speaking of the inward realities of both circumcision and baptism. And we see there that the inward reality of baptism, uh, the reality to which this outward sign of baptism points, is precisely that covenantal promise that God will count faith as righteousness. According to verse 11 of Colossians chapter 2, baptism points to the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh, or the cleansing of sin, through faith, according to verse 12. Baptism holds out in tangible form God's covenant promise to count as righteous those who believe in Jesus Christ. It guarantees God's promise to His people. That's what baptism does. Uh, It guarantees God's promise to save those who believe in Christ. It's a, a reassurance of His promise. Uh, So in that sense, it points entirely to what God has done toward man, you know, on this end of the the middle portion of the spectrum. Um, It is signing an action of God toward man. But we also have to recognize that we're not all the way on this end of the continuum because man has to believe the promises that are held out. God isn't saving the people baptized. He's holding out and pressing upon them his promise, but that promise has to be received. Um, there's both elements at play uh, in the sacrament. Uh, the, the fundamental element is God's action toward man, but we also have to recognize that that promise being held out has to be believed. Now, if that's what baptism does, if baptism holds out and presses the covenant promises upon God's people, then the question pretty naturally arises, you know, who ought the recipients of baptism to be? Um, very clearly, as uh, Reformed Christians, um, I think most of us in the room are currently Presbyterians, um, but uh, as from the historic Reformed position, we believe that uh, the sign and seal of the covenant of grace, baptism, is to be administered to believers and their children. Now, there are three strands of biblical evidence that I think are important to bear in mind in establishing the fact that baptism is to be administered to believers and their children. Uh, The first strand, so to speak, of biblical evidence is the absence of of explicit statement in the New Testament of who the recipients of baptism are to be. 
know, clearly the New Testament says that believers are to be baptized, but it doesn't speak either way on whether children are to receive baptism. Now, given that circumcision, the analogous sign of the Old Covenant, was administered to children, uh, you would expect that some sort of controversy, some sort of declaration uh, would have occurred if things had changed in the New, in the New Testament. Now, we see, for instance, in Acts 15 that when things changed with dietary laws, there was a declaration given from the Jerusalem Council, and we find no analogous uh, statement concerning the sign of the covenant. So the assumption is that it continued as it was, administered not only to believers but also to their children. Now, people say that's a weak argument. It's a, an argument from silence, so to speak, that just because that it's pushing it to say that just because the, the New Testament doesn't change what the Old Testament had said, that it's still binding. Um, but it seems to me that if you understand covenant theology, if you understand the, the unity and the continuity of God's redemptive work, then an argument from silence isn't such a weak argument. Um, God is still doing what he was doing before, and he's doing it in the same sorts of ways. Uh, so the absence of any change is one strand of argument, or one strand of biblical evidence for the baptism of children, as well as believers, obviously. But the second strand of evidence that points to the uh, baptism of not only believers but also their children is the New Testament evidence of household baptisms. Uh, they're mentioned several places, both in Acts and then in uh, 1 Corinthians. As you all know, uh, you know, one person would come to faith and then that person and his entire household would be baptized. Now, whenever you bring up household baptisms, people... Uh, sometimes kind of scoff. You know, there's, there's no indication in the Scriptures that these households that were baptized, that there were any children in the households. So it can seem to be a weak argument for infant baptism to point to household baptisms. Now, on the one hand, you could say that most likely the, houses did, the households did have children, given the way extended families lived together. But even that, I think, is an unnecessary point to argue. Um, essentially, Given household baptisms, it's irrelevant whether or not there were babies in those families. What is important and what is clear is that in the New Testament and in these household baptisms, we find the continuation of the Old Testament principle that when a man or a woman embraces the promises of God's covenant, the sign of the covenant is placed upon everyone under his or her authority. Uh, in essence, we have the same principle being applied here that had prevailed under circumcision. The sign is administered to all who fall under the authority of the believer. And so certainly that principle includes the children of a believer. Even if there were no children in these household baptisms, um, that's irrelevant. What's, what's important is the principle. And the principle is that when someone embraces the promises, the sign that Sign that signs and presses those promises is given to everyone under that person's authority. Now that's the second strand of biblical evidence. The third one, and I won't uh, belabor it, I'll just give you a, a reference. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14, um, essentially uh, there Paul is discussing marriage and he comes to consider the, the situation in which two non-believers married uh, one gets converted and all of a sudden finds uh, herself married to a non-believer. 
And the question is, what is the believer to do in that relationship? And Paul says that uh, the believer is to stay. And the reason that that the believer is to stay is because the believer, Paul says, will have a sanctifying influence on the non-believer. And as proof of that, Paul points to something that he and the Corinthian Christians evidently took for granted. And that was that the faith of a parent sanctified that parent's children. Uh, Paul refers to the children as being made holy by a believing parent. Now certainly there, Paul's using holy in the ritual sort of sense. Uh, The child is set apart, he's separated to God. The parent's faith doesn't save the child, but the parent's faith does mark the child out as being different or as being special in God's eyes. And so it makes sense then to apply the sign of the covenant to that child. Now it seems that you know, when you take these three strands together, and if you had you know, a long time to talk about it, you could look at some others, but even just these three, if you take these three strands together, it seems clear that baptism, uh, the sign and seal of the covenant of grace, is to be administered to believers and to their children. Um, in both instances, you know, when baptism is applied to a believer and when it's applied to the children of believers, it's doing the same thing. It's serving as a guarantee that God will save those who believe in Christ Jesus. It's a tangible guarantee and confirmation of His covenant promise. Uh, In that, the waters of baptism bring untold comfort and reassurance to the people of God, reassurance that the promises of God are true. And I think it's easy to take that rather lightly, but I think if, if we take... If we take the need for that reassurance lightly, I think it's only because we haven't really considered the enormity of our own sin and the enormity of the grace that's in the gospel. And when we consider the depth of our own depravity and then consider God's promise, the promise of the God who sees into our hearts, His promise that He'll look at us as righteous, that's a staggering promise. And it's something that I think if we really wrestle with what it means, it's something that we need confirmation of and reassurance of uh, somewhat frequently. Uh, if we know our own hearts, it can be almost incredible uh, that God would look at us as righteous. But He seals and confirms His promise in the sacrament. So in a sense, obviously, baptism won't save you. That's given. Baptism won't save you, but it will assure you that faith will save you. A baptism doesn't save but it assures you that faith will. Uh, It serves as a a constant reassurance for God's people, a constant reassurance that God looks on His people as righteous because of their faith. It's a, a guarantee, a tangible guarantee of the truthfulness of the gospel promise. Now, to some people, and perhaps to y'all as well, that might seem fairly tragically anticlimactic, uh, baptism essentially is nothing more than a guarantee of a promise. And that can seem to be of fairly little significance. If you already have a promise, then what's the value of a guarantee of that promise? It can seem a, a bit superfluous. But I think the, the, the infinite value of this guarantee of a promise uh, is brought out by an illustration I can't take credit for it myself. Um, Mark Ross, if y'all are familiar with Mark Ross, know him or know of him. Uh, he's a professor of systematic theology at the 
Erskine Seminary campus down in Columbia. Uh, I think he's the dean of the campus. He, he's um, with the Erskine Seminary campus in Columbia as a, a wonderful teacher and good theologian. And uh, he puts it this way. He says, you, you imagine two young ladies. Now, each of the young ladies is about to graduate from college. Each of the young ladies has a, a long-term, long-standing boyfriend. And each of those boyfriends has promised his girlfriend that he's going to marry her. He's going to love her. He's going to be with her. He's going to stay with her until death tears him apart. Now, one of those boyfriends has given his girlfriend an engagement ring. The other boyfriend hasn't. Now, both girls have received the same promise. But one girl has received a tangible guarantee of the promise. The promise is the same but one has had a tangible guarantee added on top of it. Now, is that tangible guarantee insignificant? Well, you should ask the girl who doesn't have the ring. The tangible guarantee is critical. The tangible guarantee allows you to rest in the promise that has been given. And in baptism, God is guaranteeing the promise of the gospel. And that guarantee anchors the soul of his people. God's promise is true. He's guaranteed that it's true. And his people can rest in it all the days of their lives. Now, as, as the waters of baptism wash over the head of whether it be an infant or an adult, God is verifying, he's confirming his promise that he will cleanse those who believe in him from all of his sin. Now, the promises of God that are signed, that are represented in baptism, really are literally too good to be true. But in the sacrament, God is guaranteeing to us that although they seem too good to be true, they're still true nonetheless. And the waters of baptism, God is guaranteeing His promise. So it's in that sense that the sacrament of baptism is both a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace. It represents, on the one hand, uh, the promise of the covenant. It represents this promise that faith shall be counted as righteousness, and it also seals that promise to the hearts of God's people. It confirms them in it. Uh, it brings them reassurance of it. Uh, it strengthens them in the promise that is being held out. Uh, in that sense, baptism is a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace. Now, the other sacrament, as you all know, is the Lord's Supper. And we won't be able to spend as much time on the Lord's Supper as we did on baptism uh, because generally speaking, and certainly the Lord's Supper also is profoundly tied to the covenants, but practically speaking, I think you all will encounter uh, issues with baptism in a co baptism's relation to the covenant uh, more than you probably will the Lord's Supper and its relation to the covenant. So that's why we spend more time on baptism, but we'll at least say a couple words about the Lord's Supper as well. Uh, generally speaking, the same principles apply. Uh, the Lord's Supper, just as baptism had done, the Lord's Supper represents the realities of God's covenant of grace, and it confirms those realities to His people. Now, the, the clear covenantal overtones of the Lord's Supper in the Scripture are really striking. Uh, the only time in the Gospel in the Gospels, uh, that the Gospel writers explicitly record covenantal language on Jesus' lips 
is in His words at the Last Supper. Now, the only time we read of Jesus Himself saying diatheke, using such explicitly covenantal terminology, is in the accounts that we have of the Lord's or of the Last Supper. Uh, for instance, in Matthew's account of the Last Supper, in Matthew chapter 26, verses 27 through 29, Jesus declares that the cup is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, on the one hand, Christ there is explicitly speaking of His blood as the blood of the new diatheke, but also in His declaration, uh, Christ is taking up the words of Exodus chapter 24, verse 8, uh, words that clearly are laden with covenantal significance. Uh, when Moses, back in Exodus 24, when Moses had sprinkled the blood uh, on the people at Mount Sinai, he had declared, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these truths. Uh, Christ is very self-consciously framing His coming, atoning work in covenantal terms. And we've seen, just a little while ago, uh, what I, I hope was a marginally clear statement of those same ideas back in Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, the blood of Christ is a profoundly covenantal blood. Uh, it establishes Him as the mediator of the new covenant. Uh, it cleanses the sin of God's people uh, that had uh, been imputed and that had accrued under the covenant of works. And it also freely dispenses the blessings of the covenant of grace upon the people of God. Uh, the blood of Christ is a profoundly uh, covenantal blood. Um, it, we, we have a, a richer understanding of Christ's work because of the covenant. And in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, uh, God's people are given a tangible assurance that all of these promises, his promises that Christ is our mediator, that He takes away our sin, that He gives us blessing, uh, all of these uh, blessings are being sealed, uh, they're being held out, they're represented, and they're sealed to God's people. Uh, God is showing us that His promises are true uh, and that He, uh, he will keep them. It's the, the same idea that we saw in more detail in baptism. Uh, the work that Christ has done for His people is being signed, it's being represented and held out before us, and it's being sealed for the assurance of God's people, uh, for their comfort that the promises are true. Now, um, certainly you could say a lot more about the Lord's Supper, but I think that the, the general paradigm for understanding the sacraments in a, the covenant um, hopefully are, have been brought out by our more detailed addressing of baptism uh, and then some indicators there of how the Lord's Supper is seen in the same way. Um, in the interest of time, maybe we'll keep moving unless somebody has any questions. If you have, if you have questions, please do ask. I don't want to... They, the, 
the, the, the sacraments certainly represent covenantal obligation when they're administered. You know, the, in baptism, the obligation to be set apart to Christ. There, there's not um, the same... There's not the same emphasis in the New Testament as in the Old Testament on the sort of penalties that accrue for not partaking of the sacrament. Now, you could certainly say that, that, the, that the same idea carries over through the unity of the covenants. Um, but there's... I think it would be... It would be hard to make a scriptural case that there is a... Uh, a sort of penalty that comes from not receiving, in that case, baptism. I think the the main the um, the main benef- the, the the main detriment of not receiving it is um, the the forsaking of the assurance that Christ has offered to His people, um, in the and. Dr. Ross's illustration of the two girls in the wedding ring, it's to, you know, to turn down a wedding ring, which, which I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a damage to your own assurance, your own uh, full enjoyment of the blessings. Um, but I, I, would, I would at least be a little bit uncomfortable with saying that there's much more to it than that. But I mean, I, I could be, the other, case, the other case might could be made, I'm not sure. I think, um, but I, but I do think there needs to be if uh, you know from from the the past from pastors there there does need to be a, an insistence I think that um, the sacraments be administered. I mean, if if someone if someone in the congregation has a child and just doesn't want the child to be baptized, I think it's incumbent on the pastor to uh, make a point of attempting to persuade the family to have it, simply because Christ commands us to. I mean, he commands us to baptize uh, and to, um, to be disobedient to that command is the same as to be disobedient to any. So I think it, it needs to be, you know, the sacraments need to be used. It's not, some, not just something we can either use or not, depending on what we want. Um, the past... Yeah, well, I think that the um, the 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 purpose of it is to have have a it's a sign that holds out the promise and makes it tangible for the purpose of assurance, and that doesn't necessarily have to be in your own personal baptism necessarily. I mean, I you know, I was baptized when I was you know an infant, however old exactly. I don't remember that. So my the actual remembrance of my personal baptism isn't what brings me assurance. What brings me assurance from the sacrament is now when I 
baptize a child and see God, you know, the, the sign and seal of God's promise to save those who believe in Him. And I remember that it's been administered to me and that the same promise has been held out and guaranteed. And so I think that you know, the same thing applies to somebody who um, you might want to be... Because I mean, it's, a, it's a different issue if you're coming out of the Baptist, I mean, the Catholic Church. Um, but you know, but the, you know, the idea of continued, I mean, continued baptism uh, for the sake of assurance, you know, it's, it's, not the, it's not necessarily your personal, your, your, your lucid memory of your personal participation in the sacrament as much as just the sacrament itself assuring God's people when they see it, you know, the... Puritans talked about improving your baptism, you know, seeing it done and using that to strengthen your assurance from your own baptism more so than continually receiving it yourself to, to pump up your assurance. Yeah. Yeah, that's certainly uh, one of the uh, I guess one of the distinctions and kind of the way that the two sacraments work together that you know, that the Lord's Supper is something that's observed frequently, um, you know, kind of being a, a continual nourishment of our faith, uh, nourishment of our assurance on the sacrament. I mean, there, there's, there certainly is that element to it. Anything else? Um, if y'all ever do have a chance to, uh, if you are, if you're curious about baptism sorts of issues, and you're looking for stuff to read on it, um, I would, of course, I guess Charlie did his paper on. So he might could recommend some stuff to you better than I. But I would also highly recommend anything that. Uh, Mark Ross, who I mentioned, he's uh, he does teach something. He teaches a course every now and again. If you ever if you ever have a chance to take a class with him, I would recommend it, regardless of what the class was. Um, he's a wonderful, wonderful man, a wonderful professor, and in particular on the sacraments. He's um, anybody ever heard him speak on the sacraments? Anyway, it's um, if you ever get a chance to, you should. It's uh, he's. Uh, much more animated than I, and uh, uh, is really brings the sacraments powerfully to bear in his teachings. I would recommend that he has an essay in uh, Greg Strawbridge edited a book called uh, The Case for Covenantal Infant Baptism. I think I've mentioned it before. Uh, Dr. Ross has an essay in there uh, that's, that's really good and very helpful, I think. But anyway, moving along. I had said uh, toward the beginning of the semester that we would, at the end of the semester, look at how covenant factors into some current theological discussion. Um, now, we have about 20 seconds left to do that, um, but uh, we'll, uh, that doesn't leave a lot of time to delve into specific current theological discussions, uh, but rather I want to just make a couple of observations about what we have been finding about the covenants that I think are fairly tailored to some of the uh, areas where covenant factors into current theological discussion. Uh, 
Um, and I, ultimately, I think that's preferable. And you, rather than giving y'all a sort of point-by-point point refutation of certain errors from a covenantal perspective, I hope that um, over the course of the semester we've developed some sort of uh, facility with covenant theology that will allow you to look at false teachings or evaluate teachings uh, through a covenantal paradigm. Um, hopefully that has been accomplished through the semester. But uh, to try to give you just four quick observations that I think serve to help us understand how covenant factors into current theological discussion. Um, the first observation is, I, I think, you know, hopefully over the course of the semester, uh, we've seen that not all covenant theologies are the same. Uh, even among the covenant theologians that we've primarily been reading, uh, Robertson, Horton, Murray, even among those men, we have found, I think, as you know, in the course of lectures and in your reading, you found some notable differences. And those differences can have enormous implications. Now, the, the, the breadth of those differences and the implications of those differences only increase as you widen the circle of who you're looking at as a covenant theologian. Um, you know, just because a man claims covenant theology and uses covenantal language, uh, that doesn't mean that he is safely what we would, or at least what I would, consider a, a sound covenant theologian. Um, many people today use the language of covenant, uh, and they oftentimes use that language to couch uh, some strange views. Uh, I think you probably see this most glaringly uh, in that the group of theologians that's referred to as the Federal Vision um, tends to be the way to refer to them now. Uh, they, they aren't the only ones who do it, but certainly they seem to be the most prominent ones uh, who use the language and the idea of covenant to forward their theology. And I think oftentimes it can, because covenant is used so prominently, the language and idea of covenant is used so prominently, prominently, it can make it appealing uh, to men from within the Reformed tradition uh, when really the quote-unquote covenant theology that's being forwarded is not what we would know historically as covenant theology. Uh, so hopefully over the course of the semester you've seen and had it uh, inculcated into you through your reading uh, that, not, that simply because a man claims covenant theology doesn't mean, uh, doesn't mean a great deal. We need to not let familiar terminology blind us to theological error. That's the first general observation. The second one is I think hopefully over the course of the semester we've seen the absolute centrality of the active obedience of Christ. Uh, he rendered obedience to the covenant of works. He purchased a righteousness. He attained it. He procured it. And then he imputed that righteousness to his people. In, in my opinion, if there's one thing that people need to bear in mind today in order to avoid almost all of the serious theological errors afoot, that one thing would be the active obedience of Christ. The active obedience of Christ imputed to believers for our justification and our righteousness. Um, and there's some theological uh, perspectives out there today that 
flatly and explicitly reject the notion of Christ's active obedience. Uh, one of the more prominent ones of those is the new perspective on Paul. Uh, there, the, the righteousness of Christ, that language that Paul uses with some frequency, uh, that language is seen as speaking of God's covenant faithfulness, His uh, faithfulness to His covenant promises rather than referring to the legal righteousness that Christ has won by His obedience and given to His people. And because of this disregard, you know, depending on which particular theologian you're reading, it's either a, a disregard for active obedience or it's an outright denial of active obedience, depending on who you're reading. But either way, it ends up radically altering how we understand justification. Um, hopefully seeing this covenantal framework it shows us the importance of the active obedience of Christ. Um, it's practically demanded by the covenant of works. And if we lose sight of that active obedience, our understanding of justification is uh, flawed to the point of, um, well, it's, I guess, heavy-handed throw around heresy, but um, it's, it's fundamentally flawed if we lose sight of this active obedience. Um, a lot of times you also find uh, active obedience, the active obedience of Christ and the imputation of Christ's righteousness, you find it being rejected through kind of the back door of a rejection of a pre-fall covenant of works. Um, for instance, in the Federal Vision, uh, those guys are explicit in their rejection of a pre-fall covenant of works. Uh, they say there is no pre-fall covenant of works. Um, and we've seen, even earlier today in Romans 5, uh, the centrality of the covenant of works, uh, the interaction of the covenant of grace with the covenant of works. Uh, we've seen how all that is critical to our understanding of justification. Uh, we need to be sure to keep our understanding of the covenant of works and what that tells us about Christ's active obedience. Um, essentially, when you come across something that neglects the covenant of works or that and neglects the active obedience of Christ, the imputed righteousness of Christ, when you come across something that neglects these things, um, hopefully, through what we've seen of the covenants, you'll realize that that's a serious issue. Uh, to not have a place for the covenant of works and for Christ's active obedience is a, a critical flaw in a theological system. Uh, but the third observation is hopefully we've uh, seeing the balance that we need to maintain between a unilateral divine favor and human responsibility. Now on the, on the you know, first and foremost, we need to hold and assert and maintain the absolute divine monergism in salvation. Uh, God alone saves without His uh, grace and His um, sovereign initiative. All men are dead in their sin. But secondarily, and definitely on a secondary level, we need to remember the importance of human response. Uh, we can't say that there's no place for uh, command, there's no place for law in the lives of God's people. We're saved wholly by grace, but then that grace brings a responsibility. Um, there is uh, a holiness uh, that God calls for His people to exhibit. Um, and fourthly, hopefully through the um, lens of the covenants, we've seen that God's relationship with His people uh, is both 
simultaneously relational and contractual. Uh, God's relationship with His people is not some cold contract. Uh, It does have a definite and a warm relational aspect. Uh, He is our God and we are His people. But it does also have uh, the contractual element as well. Uh, Christ has procured blessings. He dispenses them. Uh, there's the, you know, the council of peace undergirds all that occurs. You know, there's there's a, an undeniable contractual element. It's the, the contract, in a sense, that defines the relationship. And you find oftentimes today approaches to theology that focus entirely on the relational aspect um, and entirely neglect the contractual element. If you take the contractual element out of God's relationship with His people, then the relational aspect bears little meaning. Um, We need to maintain both the relational aspect and the contractual aspect as well. Uh, Those are just some some quick observations that hopefully uh, will be of some help for you if you are thinking through some uh, particular uh, current theological discussions. Hopefully those are four observations that come out of our uh, overall consideration of covenant theology that will be helpful to you. Um, and we have several minutes left. I know you all maybe have some questions about what we've been talking about today or maybe have questions about uh, just general questions from the semester or questions about the exam. Uh, I was about to preemptively talk about the exam anyway. Uh, the exam, um, I'm supposed to give it, we, I guess you all know the exam schedule. The registrar will have it tomorrow, and I guess you all take them in whatever order you um, choose. Uh, the exam will be, I haven't put the finishing touch on it yet, but it will be, be between 12 and 15 questions, um, all of them essay questions, not you know, not 10-page essay questions, but um, you know, a couple, couple, couple paragraphs. Um, the, question, the questions aren't intended to trip you up, um, but rather to uh, see how, how much you grasp just kind of the general, the, the structure of the covenants, what each of the covenants accomplishes, how each one fits into the overall view of the covenant of grace, what it contributes, how it fits. Um, there will be a couple of questions that um, are framed in a, a situational sort of way. Um, you know, uh, you're in the ministry and this happens. How do you respond? From you know, b- based off of what we've learned of the covenants, that sort of thing. Um, but they, they, there won't be any. It'll all, it'll all be you know, a couple of paragraph essay questions. No matching, or I'm not sure what other people normally have, but. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.